0: Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, And today I'm lucky enough to have Ann Rio join us on the podcast, virtually from Chicagoland. Ann, how are things going up there?
1: It's pretty cold here. we got tons of snow, and it's awesome for the kids. They're loving it.
0: That's awesome. Well, you know, I'm glad. That you're in a warm, cozy environment. I appreciate you joining us in. I love how technology's had the opportunity to connect us in a virtual way. I know that you've had 31 years of experience in this lighting industry, and you're extremely passionate about lighting. Currently, you're an independent consultant, and you, you've had the opportunity to innovate on both the product and the design side throughout our industry. Before we talk a little bit more about what it's like to follow your passion and, and how you've made a career out of that. Tell everybody, who's Anne and how did you get your start in lighting?
1: So my degrees are in architecture. My I have an undergraduate and master's degree in architecture. And it was my dream, my lifelong dream, dream as a child to be an architect. And then I had my first lighting class in college and I just fell in love that day. And I remember going back to my dorm room actually our, our apartment at that time and telling my roommates that I was going to be a lighting designer. And they said, what? Are you kidding me? After one class? And I said, heck yeah, I'm totally going to be a lighting designer. And then I remember going home on break and telling my parents that I changed my mind about what I wanted to do. And they were just completely dismayed. and flabbergasted and bummed out. And they were sure I was going to change my mind. And I didn't. And I continued with my degrees and I got a minor in illumination engineering. And then when I went to go work as a lighting designer in an architecture firm, my mom was still like blown away. She said, Annie, any fool can put lights in a ceiling and call it a lighting design. Are you sure you want to do this?
0: (laughs) And you knew from an early, early, early age, you're like, no, no, mom. There's way more than just sticking lights in a ceiling when it comes to lighting.
1: Totally. And it's true, though. Any anybody can put lights in a ceiling. There's that's so true. But people that don't know anything about lighting know and feel what good lighting is. And it's just this intangible thing that affects almost all your senses in some ways. You know, so I am very, very much in love with lighting and architecture. and, And it's just it's it's driven me throughout my entire career in every aspect. Well, I know that lighting
0: is obviously a passion of yours. Talk to us just a little bit more about your steps in your career. I know we could get the full unabbreviated version, but you know, just quickly, how'd you run through your first set of jobs in the lighting industry?
1: Well, as I, I started as a lighting designer in the electrical engineering department of a big architectural engineering firm and then built a lighting group there that was it was almost like my first business that I started. And it was very successful. We marketed our services outside the firm to other architecture firms. And it was fun. We were super busy. And then I went on a specifier trip to Indie Lighting. And I was just hanging out with the folks from the factory and the founder of the business, Barry Heineman. He asked me, what does Ann Rio want to do when she grows up? And I said, you know, I'd really love to develop product, but I don't really know how to do like do that as a career. And he said, well, the first thing you need to do is get out of your own sort of cocoon and, and understand other people's perspectives and lighting. And he's like, the perfect way to do that is to go into sales. And I didn't know it at the time, but he was kind of selling me at the time to come and work for him.
0: As all good salesmen do. (laughs) They're they're constantly on their A-game.
1: And he is Barry Hyndman. I haven't seen him in years. I don't know where he is. But anyway, he was just a really, really cool guy. And he told me how he started Indie Lighting. And everyone's got a unique story about why they start a business and how. But Anyway, he was so right. I was so glad that I went and worked in sales. And it was actually national account sales, which he told me, which is so true. There's a lot of product modifications in national account sales because retailers want something different than what's maybe currently available. And that's actually how he started Indie Lighting because he came up with the idea of a pull-down adjustable light fixture and he built a company around that idea. So I... In my head, had a limit of two years in that role, and literally to the day, two years later, I got a call from Pete Thornton, who said, Hey, I'd like you to come see my new manufacturing plant down in ALSIP, Illinois. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of busy right now, <laughs> I didn't, I was like, I don't, you know, anyway, so he.
0: And if anybody's met Pete Thornton, right, the, the founder of Focal Point, you know, Pete loved his machinery, loved his technology, and he's proud of what he had. He probably wasn't going to take no for an answer, was he?
1: No, he wasn't because he was an awesome salesperson too. So I went down to Elsip, and I'll never forget walking into this big empty warehouse and in the middle of it was this red almost called it Salvanini a, Salvanini I almost called it a Zamboni <laughs> and the
0: red Zamboni of Sokol Point
1: Oh my god that thing it it was pretty amazing and you know to to watch Pete talk about that piece of machinery and how it can fold metal like origami I mean he was just so into it
0: And just so we're just so we're clear, like that that piece of metal being folded like origami, that wasn't like yesterday in 2019. That was back in the early nineties when flat screen monitors didn't exist, nobody had cell phones. Like, I mean, this was early, early on in manufacturing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, and then Pete and then I well, okay, so he then offered me a job at that point in time. And it was a sales job. And I said, Well, I'm really not I'm not, that's not my passion. My passion is product development. And he said, well, okay, you know, we're a startup and I know you're, this is sort of new for you too. Why don't we take a chance on each other? And that's what I did. I went and worked for them as VP of product development and marketing before they were really shipping any product whatsoever. And I had a great run with them. It was very, it was, it was really fun. And we developed really unique products. The company grew fast, and then it—I it, don't know—I I, it got to a point where I I felt like I wanted to get some equity in the business, and I asked for it, and they politely said no. And so then I went on to—I just moved on. I said, you know, I'm going to start my own business, and I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do at that point. So I called up Bob Shook of Shuler and Shook and said, hey, can I? Can I work part-time for you as a lighting designer? Do you need anybody? And he said, heck, yeah, we're so busy. They were so busy at that time. They had Millennium Park and so many different projects, fabulous projects. I loved working at Shuler & Chuck. And so I worked part-time there, which turned into full-time because they were so busy. But meanwhile, I was writing a business plan and developing LED lighting fixtures while working for them. So this was in 1999.
0: Hold hold on. Hold on a second there. 1999, you were writing a business plan for LED luminaires. I mean, this industry didn't adopt LED technology in a vast sense until like really 2010, 2011. So you're telling me 13, 12 years ahead of time, you were thinking about how this technology, what what gave you the foresight to say, this is something that could I, I could turn into an entire business?
1: Well, I was just absolutely fascinated that a light bulb could be flat. And redefining the architecture of a light fixture was just fascinating to me. And I truly believed those charts that all the, you know, Osram Sylvania and and Phillips and some of the other Nietzsche that basically showed the luminous efficacy over time and what the quantum potential of the led is and at that time the the efficacy was about 12 lumens per watt and the white was awful
0: 12 if for anybody out there listening i'm sure you're shaking your heads nobody in their right mind even knew an led was only 12 lumens per watt <laughs> at yeah. some point point.
1: and it was these goofy strips that osram was, was you know manufacturing back then but you know, I I started thinking about it and and talking to some people in the industry and in the in the LED industry, which was a whole another world to me. And they were like, "Yeah, but you can make your own printed circuit boards." And I thought, "Well, now now we're talking." You know,
0: that wasn't the lighting industry. I just want to clarify that the LED industry was its own industry of, of creating light emitting diodes, and they were looking. For places to go, put LED in commercial products, and obviously light fixtures was a given, so to speak, right? But there were other places that maybe they thought LEDs might go, like stoplights or consumer electronics or things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they were making printed circuit boards for those applications, so taillights for, like you said, consumer electronics for stoplights, things like that. So,
0: so what do you think? What do you think it was? that finally gave the LED industry the tenacity or, or the opportunity to come into architectural lighting and be adopted into what what we know as everything we use today?
1: So part of my business plan back then was to focus on white light LEDs. I did not want to be a color kinetics because it was really only color kinetics at that time that existed in commercial lighting as a startup. And so I did not want to, to be one of those architectural lighting companies. So I stuck with the technology until I started to see promise in the quality of the white light. And in talking to Osram Sylvania and Nietzsche at the time, they were very interested in all ears and well, what are you looking for from this LED and, you know, in terms of metrics. And so I... I remember showing some of these guys like specification sheets of lamps and saying, look at this. This is the kind of stuff we're we're interested in and CRI and color temperature and, blah, 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 you know, anyway. And so our nine values. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, they, I
0: mean, they hadn't, they hadn't, to your point, they didn't know what the lighting industry was looking for. They just knew they had something that might be able to solve a problem.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so anyway, Lumiled's Was probably the first to come up with, I would say, a quality white light, if you will. And but even then, back we had to bin this. You know, you've heard heard the term binning. Yeah, absolutely. We would buy a a couple bins. We but it would be a broad bin, and so we would have to bin back in our factory, like to even get it tighter, so that you know, because obviously. We used to call it Rainbow Sherbert. If you didn't, if you, if you didn't, they- <laughs> A little how they bit of would,
0: purple, a little bit of green.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. they would call it 3K, but it looked like a rainbow, you know? So anyway, yeah. we had to sort sort it back at our factory. And yeah, so anyway, it was, it was very challenging, I have to tell you. It wasn't until about 2004 where we were able to buy a, a really good, consistent LED. And at that, that point in time, we were making our own printed circuit boards. And designing lighting fixtures around the shape of a printed circuit board that was only in our heads at that time, you know what I mean? So it was really yeah. crazy times, and I, but it was so fun. I loved it. We, we, were, and the other piece of this that was extremely important to me was the optics. I mean, we, we had to marry the LED with fabulous optics, because the potential there was just crazy. I mean, you know, you could create a super efficient light fixture by trapping all of the photons, so to speak, and focusing it and putting it where it needed to be. So anyway, in 2004, we launched this product called Line 2.0. And it was a linear product that was approximately two inch by two inch, which is why it was called 2.0. So two inch by two inch in cross section. And It won best new product of the year at Life Fair.
0: Of course, it did because nobody had ever seen anything like it before.
1: No, they hadn't. No, they had not. And and the performance was amazing. I remember, like, I knew what I wanted when we were designing it, and I knew, I knew, I wanted a really flat, tight beam that could graze building facades, uh, both interior and exterior, to just reveal the texture of stone. And I, and I, it was like my dream to come up with that light fixture. And then when we lit it up after getting the optics back from the manufacturer, we designed our own optics too. But I mean, when we assembled the fixture and lit it up, I literally, it was my biggest aha moment. I mean, besides when my children were born. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I,
0: I'm sure they appreciate it. It was amazing.
1: That. It was amazing. And yeah.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit more about this progression of the LED and how that was truly transformative in this industry. But before we get to that, I've just got to ask. You know, you said you wanted to make something that was two inches by two inches. You were an industrial designer. You were a product designer. You saw opportunity and you wrote a whole business plan about it. But I want to know just a little bit more about your approach. Like, what made you say two inches by two inches? What made you say a flat beam of light to to graze the wall where does that inspiration come from
1: all right well there were two things that were driving the the design of the luminaires one is i wanted the the light fixtures to disappear i really didn't want to see them i wanted them to be recessed into niches or sitting on a building ledge where you you didn't see it i wanted the light fixture to go away and just the light emanating from the luminaire to be revealed in, on the build, building's facade or, you know, the a wall and a lobby or whatever. And I just wanted to reveal architecture, not the light fixture. So the fixtures had to be as small as humanly possible. They had to have great optics and they had to have really, really good consistency in terms of that line of light. So anyway, that's where it all came from from the beginning was to just keep the light fixtures small so they go away.
0: And when you thought about how to make things small and things go away, just remind us all, what was doing this work before the opportunity to use a small compact linear wall grazer?
1: Well, I actually designed a a project back in the mid-90s where I used, it was, I forgot the name of this manufacturer, but it was these little halogen lamps that sat like maybe a half an inch apart and there was this kind of this optic on it but but it only really grazed the facade by maybe two or three feet and i just thought oh this is so lame you know and then who was it that i'm trying to think of the manufacturer that did the slot light where you had par lamps that were right next to each other edison price that's it that's it yep and so they were par lamps right next to each other, you know, on seven inch centers or whatever it was with baffles between. And those were great, too. And I just loved I loved those fixtures for what for the light that was produced. But man, what a pain those fixtures were. I mean, you know, they they were just big. I mean, you had talk about maintenance. Oh, my God, you had all these power lamps right next to each other. And it was just really difficult.
0: It was really difficult. So, I mean, what it came down to was there was there was something that was a linear solution. There was something that you could put out there that was achieving it. But at the end of the day, it was big. It was a pain and it didn't make sense. So, it was a natural place for you to, to really say, hey, this is a good place to start and to innovate when it comes to LED lighting. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive more into that how you found opportunities to let LED exploit the industry and evolve what we know today as pretty much every light fixture that's specified and built. Sound good? Sounds great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, this podcast is sponsored by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. Check them out at LYTEI.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Ann and I were just catching up a little bit more about how in 1999, even Bob Shook, a premier lighting designer in Chicago, really didn't even know what an LED was. It's hard to believe that 22 years later, it completely dominates the market, yet nobody even knew about it back then, so to speak. And talk to me just a little bit more about when you found LEDs, you obviously had an insight into the fact they had potential. But did you know they were gonna make the impact they've made in the lighting industry?
1: Well, I guess I believed the projection. Like I said, the quantum potential of the LED even back then was about 200 lumens per watt, and which to me is remarkable was was remarkable then and is remarkable now because we're bas- basically achieving that now. And then, so yeah, I did believe it. I believed I believed those projections when I really believed the impact would be amazing and just no turning back was when the quality of the white light really became consistent. And for us, that was back around 2004, 2005. As you said, adoption really didn't occur until about 2010 but we had a thriving business i mean the business was just booming and we were doing a ton of overseas work and back in 2006 when everything just went to hell in a handbasket or no that was 2008 right yeah to, yeah like, it was
0: 2006 2000, to 2000 yeah, 2000, yeah 2008 we, is when it really all crashed
1: so we were we were doing so well during all that because I, we had global work and i remember at that time, like we had already sold the business to Cooper, and all the brands were doing really poorly, except for IO, because we were shipping globally. It wasn't just in the United States. In fact, I think 45% of our business was overseas, and there were huge projects, just huge, like airports and stuff like that, all designed out of the United States by lighting designers, though.
0: And that was a tip of the hat to the fact that what you had was something that was truly innovative, right? You had found a way to solve a problem. You had found a way to use a new technology in a niche, right? Linear grazer in lighting design. Talk about a niche in a niche. When you when you saw the success that IO had, did you have a, an idea or a vision or a scope that you thought this would explode over the next four years? Why do you think it took another almost six years for the industry to adopt this technology?
1: Well, I think Well, what I witnessed was that manufacturers were taking the wrong approach in utilizing LEDs. They were trying to basically jam LEDs into existing light fixtures to just get out there with an LED product. And it was, to me, just ridiculous. Because part of the, the magic of using an LED light source is that you can you can reduce the material content of the luminaire. I mean, you can, you can take down, take out so much sheet metal or whatever that, and, and reduce the overall size of it. So you save money there. Obviously the LED was a lot more expensive than other light sources, but it just didn't make any sense to me that, that, you just wouldn't redesign a light fixture with this new flat light bulb. So anyway, I don't think it made much sense to most lighting designers either. So adoption was slow and it wasn't until manufacturers really just said, okay, let's, let's start from scratch here. And then we started to see like, like another, a great example of how one aspect of the industry was changed was street lighting. You know, they. When you look at street lights and parking lot lights now, they the form factor is so, so much more minimal. It's not that shoebox anymore. You know, it's this very minimal, cool looking light fixture because they just started from scratch. And now, you know, it's hard to find a shoebox anymore because all of it's been changed. You know, so
0: you know, you brought you brought up something super interesting, and I I've got to go back to it so we can get clarity on it. You mentioned that manufacturers didn't really understand the value of it and lighting designers didn't understand what a flat light bulb was. What was the uh, horse that pulled the cart here? In in this instance, and maybe overall in the industry, does manufacturing have to push technology forward to get the design community to adopt it? Or did the design community start to learn and pull the technology along?
1: The design community, absolutely, without question. So, you know, what we did when my, so I started the business with my sister, Eileen, and she was VP of sales. And so she and I, along with our other sales managers would literally run around this country teaching lighting designers and architects what an LED is and the value proposition. It was, I mean, I can't even count the number of CEU courses I've done in my life around LEDs. It's, it's. Maybe thousands, and it, so you multiply that by four people doing that, right? So these lighting designers and architects are were just fascinated by the technology and loved the fact that we were designing to the light source and capitalizing on the miniature nature of the light source and designing really good optics. You know, so they got it and they loved it, and so that was really at the that's how we became so successful. The lighting designers believed in it.
0: And, you know, I know that obviously you were, you're heavily involved with IO and that was your baby. It, it created a tremendous amount of, ex, of success, but it's almost a metaphor for LED in the lighting industry. It's everything that the industry is today. It's, you know, nobody no longer says, you know, let's put some LED lights in a building. They just say, let's put lights in a building, and everybody assumes that they're going to be LED. Because to your point and in the credit of your statement, designers realized that finally products were being designed around the source. And the source is the baseline of really design at the end of the day. Because you gotta put light in a space. As you look back on all of this, and you look at the evolution of, you know, your eight years with I.O. and selling it off to Cooper, and then how this industry got wildly Crazy, successful, busy, rich, fast, famous, and everything else with LEDs accelerating this entire industry forward. Is there anything in there that happened that you didn't necessarily expect to happen?
1: Well, I think, oh gosh, you know, I think the hardest part for me that was unexpected was just dealing with like raising capital to run a business. And then being beholden to investors and things like that, you know, like that piece of the business side of it, which by the way, I loved and be and just really, really learned so much and almost loved it as much as I loved designing LED luminaires. Dealing with the the, sort of the business side of it, the investor piece of that's really not fun and it's hard, you know, and so... (laughs) I was, didn't really even want to sell IO lighting. It was really the investors that wanted to sell it. It was time to get the payday, you know? Yeah. So I would still have IO lighting today if, I, if it was up to me. But, you know, when you're just this young lady with a dream and not enough capital to start a manufacturing company, you need to borrow money. <laughs> so...
0: You know, and what's interesting to me is there was a crazy amount of success that you had early on with IO and the LED industry. But as you look back on how our industry as a whole has adopted LED technology, is there anything that sticks out to you that happened that surprises you?
1: Well, I still find it interesting that so many of the form factors that you'd see at Lightfare back in the early nineties are still in existence today. I'm surprised that there's not more innovation around the Luminaire design. I think there's some really great manufacturers out there doing some really cool things. But I would have thought that it would have been taken farther. I really would have. I feel like I open up any lighting cal- catalog, whether it be you know online or in front of me, I feel like I'm not seeing a ton of innovation I don't know. It's just my perspective. But I hope that when we can all go back to these lighting shows in the fall.
0: Everything's secretly hiding. That's top secret. And they're all waiting for the big trade show to launch things, right? Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting point you bring up. I mean, a lot of lighting in the architectural world is primarily driven by architecture itself. And ACT ceilings are ubiquitous. So, you know, slot lights as far as we've gotten past a, a tradi- traditional two by two or two by four. But there's no reason that, uh, I mean, light makes such an impact on the environment in a space that we couldn't push innovation a little bit further. I tend to agree with you. You know, why are we still using these traditional form factors? That's a question I think we both have. And hopefully, whoever's listening to this out there can call us and give us an answer as we close out here today. I have to ask you just one final question. And you may have just given me a little bit of the answer already. But as you look to the next five years of this industry, what's your hope as a product designer, as an industrial designer, as somebody who's passionate about that flat light? Well what do you want to see happen?
1: Well, luminaires are becoming more than just light fixtures these days, right? Obviously there's a lot of sensors, different types of sensors being mounted to the luminaires. These network lighting systems are Gonna take over, really.
0: And yeah, and and lights being used as a communication device, and it's also now being used as a way to control pathogens, and you see a, a huge movement in the UVC area as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really the the light fixture has has taken on so many more jobs, if you will, rather besides just lighting up a space. So mm-hmm. I think that's really awesome, and that that's fun to see, but. And I think you'll just see more of it, but there's challenges there too, because then you have the big conglomerates all have their own control systems and commissioning these buildings has become so challenging for lighting designers because you don't have all the light fixtures speaking the same language, so to speak, right? So that's, I think, you know, we all know lighting designers have a big challenge with that right now. And so I think a lot of work has to be done there, but I guess I still hope to see the form factors changing in a good way. It would be nice to see the light fixture adapt to, you know, renewables. That's my newest passion these days. Is, Absolutely. Is getting the building off the grid. I mean, not just because it's a good idea for from an energy saving standpoint.
0: But so many people don't have a source of energy in the world. and Off-grid allows them to then utilize technology in a way that they've never experienced life before
1: right and not to mention that you know with cyber warfare that's a whole very real deal
0: out there ooh, 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 ooh. cyber warfare and we're gonna bring we're gonna bring you back for part two of a podcast and we're gonna talk about cyber warfare <laughs> i haven't had that one yet <laughs>
1: Well, you know, if you can get your building off the grid, there's just so many good things about that. (laughs) So
0: fair enough. And I really appreciate this conversation. Your reputation precedes you 31 years of being passionate about lighting. I hope we can catch up some more soon. Talk about cyber warfare. Talk about, you know, the evolution of this industry and how things really can make a difference. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, if they've got questions or they just want to reach out, what's the best way that people can get a hold of Anne?
1: I think the easiest way is just LinkedIn.
0: LinkedIn. That's A-N-N-R-E-O, Anreo. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: And thank you so much. Stay warm up there in Chicagoland. Take care of your dogs. Tell them I say hi. You know, they, <laughs> I know they were chasing squirrels around while we were recording this podcast. If you've made it this far with us and you enjoyed the, the, the dogs barking and the squirrels, thanks for hanging in there. And thanks again. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, Sam. And good luck with your business. I love your business idea.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. See ya. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, if you enjoyed this podcast, do me a favor. Head back to the platform that you listen to and click like or subscribe. That's the best way to never miss an episode of The Light Pod, where we interview people who are all things lighting, building technology, curious about the future, and honestly, just have fun stories to tell. Until then, see ya.